Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's tribute to Robert Conquest, a senior research fellow and scholar curator at Hoover for 28 years who passed away in 2015. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Robert Conquest was a renowned historian of Soviet politics and foreign policy. His landmark work, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the 30s, remains one of the most influential studies of Soviet history more than 35 years after its publication, and has been translated into more than 20 languages. More than a celebrated historian, Conquest was also a talented man of letters, publishing eight volumes of poetry and serving as a literary editor of the London Spectator. In this panel, entitled Conquest's Influence on Margaret Thatcher, we'll hear from John O'Sullivan, an author and journalist and a regular speechwriter for Prime Minister Thatcher before and during her years in power. O'Sullivan is introduced by the moderator, Joseph Joffe, a Hoover Research Fellow. The panel was recorded on January 25th, 2016. I'm Joseph Joffe, and I'm here briefly to introduce our speaker, John O'Sullivan. Uh, and I think he is, John is the most extraordinary man because sometimes you can see him sit in two planes at once. One is taking off from Budapest, Sydney, or San Francisco, and the other one is landing, with both having him inside. And this, is, and how, this kind of ubiquity and simultaneity can be explained. In Sydney, he edits the Quadrant magazine, a, a journal dealing with ideas, politics, culture, and so on. In Budapest, he edits another magazine called the Hungarian Review, same kind of thing, not in Hungarian, but in English. Nor is this all. He has edited the National Interest, a foreign policy magazine, and the National Review, a magazine that just caught the attention of Donald Trump <laughs> because this central committee of, American, uh, of uh, conservatism in America pronounced him unfit to be the Republican uh, nominee. So these two magazines means that John was also a habitué of JFK and Dulles, where he kept landing and taking off at the same time. In Prague, most recently, he served as the executive editor of Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty. In London, he served as special advisor to Margaret Thatcher, and last, but not least, he knows SFO intimate, uh, San Francisco Airport intimately because he's been a very good friend and longtime friend of Bob and Liddy Conquest for ages. So enough of the intro. Uh, John will now talk to us about this duo, Conquest and Thatcher, notably about Bob's influence on Maggie. John, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Joe, for that very cordial introduction. I should say that in describing me as a um, representative of airport civilization, I, I yield to no one uh, uh, except perhaps you. Uh, I, knew also, it. I knew it. I knew you would come back with that. <laughs> also, um, I want to say that I am not a refugee from National Review. My position on Donald Trump is exactly halfway between my colleagues at National Review and my wife. Uh, now, um, <laughs> th thank you for the, the introduction. And uh, let me say that it is a privilege 
for me to be invited to speak on this topic and on this occasion. I mean, admirers and friends of Bob um, have always been grateful to the Hoover Institution um, for providing him with scholarly support, um, mass um, uh, means, uh, administrative backing that made it possible for him to produce historical and scholarly and artistic works of the highest quality for more than 30 years. We're doubly in Hoover's debt for holding this conference, um, which, among other things, shows its pride in what Robert, with its help, achieved. And, of course, we're further fortunate in having among us today uh, Bob's greatly loved wife, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Conquest, uh, more familiarly Liddy, um, who um, provided Bob with the deep domestic happiness that helped him to write books at about the rate of one a year, significant acceleration from before their marriage, and who is, so to speak, the presiding spirit of this conference. Now, in her professional life, Liddy is a distinguished literary critic. Some of you may recall the old story of a lady with much lower literary accomplishments who, for the first time in her life, attended the performance of a Shakespeare play. It was Hamlet. After the show, her friends crowded around her, anxious to find out what she thought of the play. And she said, yes, I, I enjoyed it somewhat, but I thought it had far too many quotations. <laughs> Now, and I'm afraid that you may think the same today when I've spoken, because thanks to Liddy, I've had access to very substantial correspondence between Bob and Mrs. Thatcher from 1975 uh, until very recent years. It's a correspondence between friends as well as between intellectual and political allies. But it's a combination of social, gossip, arrangements for meetings, requests and suggestions for things to be read, bread and butter notes, uh, thank you notes, and above all, the warmth which accompanied these exchanges leave no doubt as to the depth of influence that each correspondent exercised over the other. And that is why a very great deal of what I say today uh, will consist of quotations from the letters between them. And my role in this is quite a humble one, namely I introduce them. I met Bob in 71 when I was invited to join the so-called fascist lunches that met every Tuesday at Bertarelli's restaurant. <laughs> and that were attended by conservative writers and journalists, including Kingsley Amis, Anthony Pohl, Bernard Levin, Simon Raven, and of course, Bob. This group became famous or infamous because six of its members wrote a letter to the London Times supporting the American intervention in Vietnam. It was an extraordinarily talented group, uh, and the lunches which, um, to which equally talented guests uh, would come along. Uh, were a lively postgraduate education in literature, politics, history, and wit. Um, as the Abbe Sears said when asked what he did during the French Revolution, I survived. As a result, I got a phone call from Bob two years later, about late 74, inviting me to share his apartment. Sadly, both our managers had ended. Bob needed someone to share the rent in a fine apartment facing onto Battersea Park, and I was staying in a very expensive broom closet in Belgravia. So I spent a fascinating few years there in the apartment, which gave me the chance to lunch with Scoop Japsson, answer the phone to find Solzhenitsyn on the line, and to attend any number of lively literary parties with guests like Philip Larkin and Clive James. At the time, I was a parliamentary sketchwriter for the Daily Telegraph. By the way, that's a much better job than an editorship. And by chance, an old friend of Richard Ryder, now Lord Ryder, um, who was appointed 
political secretary to the leader of the opposition when Mrs. Thatcher won the job. She was well aware of her inexperience in foreign policy, and she asked Richard to help uh, to find someone who would help to write her first major speech as, op as opposition leader on it. Richard thought that he and I might manage to do this, which is, astounds me that how blind about themselves people can be. Uh, well, that applies to me because I, tried, I agreed to try. But in fact, it was, um, it was obvious that you know, neither of us knew anything about foreign policy and um, uh, we couldn't possibly give the leader of the opposition a speech by two amateurs. So I said, well, I happen to be sharing an apartment with Conquest. Why don't we ask him? And that is indeed exactly what happened. Um, Bob became the, um, the speechwriter. He met Mrs. Thatcher. He went round to her house with, at uh, Flood Street. And oh, I don't think it's me. <laughs> no, no, normally is. <laughs> um, well, it's, it, as I say, it became apparent that we'd have to get someone good. And Richard um, went back, suggested to Mrs. Thatcher that she approached uh, Conquest. Um, uh, she, he went, she went he went round to Flood Street, where she then lived. She produced a bottle of champagne, which is a very good, not very usual opening, but a very good opening for Bob, um, and, um, and uh, started writing the, um, the, the speech. Um, that speech was, in fact, um, a speech that became known as the Iron Lady speech, one of two speeches. Um, the mood of Western elites towards the Soviet Union was one of rapprochement, there was a background of weakness. It was considered, but this is Bob saying this, it was considered maverick to question this, yet she chose to do so. And the speech came at an important time because the Labour government was cutting defence spending on the grounds that detente made such spending unnecessary. So she made a fairly major speech. Um, I will quote a line from it, some lines from it, um, and these are his words. Of course we want a world in which our relations with the Soviet Union are based upon peace and trust, as they should be with every country. But we have not yet got that world. Then, so saying so, merely pretending that we have, is as foolish as it is dangerous. Detente sounds a fine word, and to the extent that there really has been a relaxation in international tensions, it's a fine thing. But the fact remains that throughout this decade of detente, the armed forces of the Soviet Union have increased, are increasing, and show no sign of diminishing. Um, and um, it was that speech, as I say, which led Red Star to uh, call Mrs. Thatcher the Iron Lady. Um, well, that um, speech was the beginning of, of many other speeches. From that point on, uh, Bob became a close advisor to Mrs. Thatcher on Soviet affairs, but also on foreign affairs more generally. And that continued when two years later, Bob moved to the Woodrow Wilson Center and later to Hoover. Um, I think a note here is worth making about advisors. Um, Mrs. Thatcher um, never wanted to be beholden purely to official advisors. She didn't, she recognized entirely how that they were often excellent, usually. She recognized, too, that there was often a departmental view that distorted the advice she got. And she also thought that, that Whitehall was a village. And a lot of things happened outside it that the inhabitants of the village didn't know. So she, so she wanted to have um, a range of views in addition to, um, to, to the ones she got from the Whitehall machine, even though she admired it. Um, 
some of those views, some of the advices she chose, were plainly eccentric. And I don't mean that as a, as a condemnation. Uh, Alfred Sherman, on the domestic side, um, said a lot of outrageous things. But his advice was excellent in provoking and um, presenting new arguments and provoking um, the, uh, the discussion of things which hitherto had been simply ignored. Now, Bob fell into a middle category. He was an outsider, but he was one of those few outsiders who come equipped with a, a, an international reputation um, and an expertise at, at many things, which meant that she had complete confidence in him. Not all, she didn't have complete confidence in all her advisors, official or non-official. She had largely uh, a pretty good confidence, but not complete. In Bob, I think she had no doubts that she would never get bad advice. She might get advice that later turned out to be mistaken, of course, but that's true for anybody. So he had a kind of privileged position. Um, and uh, I think I should just add something that Bob himself said here about dealing with her. Um, he said, I was once asked um, whether academics in general are useful allies in opposition or in government. In the field of economics, Margaret did consult with and take advice from a number of academics, and she found their work useful. However, in the field of Soviet studies, she found, as I did, that the work done by most of them was very much less than useful. That Margaret often took my advice, rather than that of the Foreign Office, caused some resentment in the Foreign Office. Carrington complained that she never trusted the Foreign Office, rightly so, as it often took actions completely opposed to those, to those she had wished. Um, then he says about personally dealing with her, um, I continued to correspond and meet with Margaret right through her years as Prime Minister, and afterwards sometimes as a guest in her home. She always had definite opinions, but I found her also willing to change her mind, so long as I was persistent in making the case. After saying, no, Margaret, you're wrong, several times, she might eventually admit, well, perhaps you're right. Um, now, um, Bob's appointment didn't go unnoticed by some of the advisers. We're only in opposition at this point. Um, he, uh, um, the, the conservative, um, those conservative MPs and, and shadow ministers interested in foreign policy, particularly Reginald Maudling, who was Mrs. Thatcher's shadow foreign minister, um, didn't in fact like uh, Bob's position and privileged position. They were sort of irritated about it. Um, uh, Reggie Maudling, in fact, I happened to be in the room at this occasion, Reggie Maudling came into the Daily Telegraph to discuss foreign, what conservative policy should be. And in the course of the discussion, he said, he was obviously fed up with it, he said, look, she's a completely unreasonable woman. She's appointing all kinds of fanatics to give her advice. This Bob Conquest, for example. Well, the, the, the meeting, uh, the atmosphere of the meeting dropped uh, a, a few um, uh, temperature, a, a few uh, uh, degrees, because although he didn't know it, um, or hadn't bothered to, uh, uh, Bob was one of our regular columnists on the paper, and uh, so when uh, when he when Reggie left the room, Bill Deeds said to me, "You know, you might have thought he would have done enough research to know that Conquest was one of our writers, uh, but um, but he didn't." Um, Bob was at this point working on his next book, 
and that book was Present Danger uh, on National Security, uh, and um, he spent some time here and, and, and in Woodrow Wilson d developing the arguments of that book. He came back to Britain in 1978 and gave Mrs. Thatcher an early draft. Um, that book then became the basis for several speeches that she made in opposition. So that when um, uh, he wrote the book, he had to insert, as the, as the prime, because she now was just selected, as the prime minister has wisely pointed out, uh, <laughs> at, at various sections of the book. Uh, by the way, she, uh, he asked her on that basis that if she would allow him to, uh, to um, dedicate his next book uh, to her, uh, and uh, she agreed. Uh, that book is We and They, his meditation on competition between civic and despotic cultures. It's one of his best and I think and least known books in my view. And it is indeed, as requested, dedicated to Margaret Thatcher with the words Dux Femina Facti, which is a typically concise, even cryptic quote from Virgil, which as far as you can correct me if you've got Latin scholars in the argument, I believe means a woman is the, is the, a woman is the leader in the enterprise. Um, so, as I say, corrections accepted nervously. That's true. <laughs> um, now, Bob continued to advise across the Atlantic and remained a close advisor. Uh, Bob's relationship with Mrs. Thatcher and his influence on her and the administration um, now goes through several phases. Uh, as we've seen in opposition, the, the relationship was very much pupil and master with, with Bob as master. Uh, and Mrs. Thatcher was, of course, throughout her life, an earnest, clever scholarship girl who was determined to get to know all of the facts and, and to master her subjects. Um, but the relationship of master and pupil inevitably changed uh, when she became uh, prime minister and acquired an entire administration of advisors, including the foreign office, and over time uh, obviously became herself more experienced and knowledgeable in her handling of foreign policy. Through the later stage of their relationship, um, uh, the, the, this fact becomes not a problem between them, but it simply reflects a slightly different relationship. Um, uh, there are really two, uh, sorry, three future uh, elements in the relationship. First of all, stage two uh, is before Gorbachev. Stage three is between Gorbachev and her losing office in 1990. And the final stage is after she has left office, but continued to write, speak, and have an effect on events such as, for instance, the wars of nationalism that followed the breakup of Yugoslavia. Of course, throughout all this period, or three periods rather, Bob was writing here at Hoover, speaking, producing important contributions to Soviet history, such as the Harvest of Sorrow, and visiting the post-Soviet nations, including Russia, to be celebrated as the man who had written honest histories of their nations, which, when it was still forbidden to do so at home. Now, I'll touch briefly on a few particular instances of his influence in each case before reaching a general conclusion. Prior to Gorbachev, there was little or no distance between Mrs. Thatcher and Bob on political issues, dip diplomatic issues, and so on. Um, on building up NATO, strengthening the relationship between Reagan and Thatcher, 
installing US missiles in Western Europe, and in general giving uh, her arguments on Soviet policies, and giving her arguments that strengthened her on policies towards the Soviet Union. Um, he, was, he was an extremely useful, helpful, but more or less, um, so to speak, strengthening the, the, the joint, their joint position rather than debating with him. So, for example, on the 15th of March, 1982, he writes to her after, a visit to, after he's had a visit to Washington and gives her some very useful political intelligence on what is happening in the administration. He notes, for example, that Judge Clark has um, come in to been appointed National Security Advisor and thinks that this represents Reagan's attempt to have a reliable ally in the NSC. Uh, there's much else in this vein of political intelligence. Then he discusses, interestingly, the rise of anti-Americanism in British opinion. Um, and that, I remember very vividly at the time, was a real political issue in Britain. Um, uh, the opinion being shaped by hostile attitudes in the Washington press corps, including the British, the British press corps there, uh, towards uh, Reagan as a, a kind of extreme trigger-happy uh, president. Well, we know, of course, in retrospect, just how absurd that characterization of Reagan was. But at the time, it was widely believed throughout Europe and, and including Britain. So Bob, at that point, strongly urged the Prime Minister to give a major speech directly attacking this, prop, this uh, argument. And he said that this is a serious matter because it, it carries the risk of either undermining or obstructing what are otherwise good relations between the two governments. Um, as a matter of fact, later on when I was working for Mrs. Thatcher, I noticed in the middle of a speech there was a, a line which said, this, he was addressing a conservative audience, this is a pro-American party. And I said, you know, I agree with that, but it doesn't seem to be related to the previous couple of pages at all. And she said, no, she said, you know, if we have a dull passage in the speech, we often throw that line in because it always gets applause. <laughs> And, and, um, and, of course, I think that stems from Bob's, uh, Bob's advice, because he, she did, in fact, give a speech on, on that occasion. Um, now, um, uh, Bob was not present at the Chequers seminar following her 83 election victory. That was, um, there's no significance in that. His point of view was strongly represented by others, including the historian Hugh Thomas, with whom he had worked. Um, but the, that, that was an, this is a time when British policy is beginning to possibly change, um, as indeed I think was true of the Reagan administration. It was clear that we had won the battle on installing uh, missiles, uh, US missiles in Western Europe. I'm, I'm talking in front of Mr. Schultz here who was involved in these decisions. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm open obviously to correction. But in the British government certainly there were discussions um, on how to restart relations with the Soviet Union, but now from a position of greater political strength in which we would no longer have to, uh, we were no longer open to uh, vulnerability. Um, and since Mrs. Thatcher had just won an election uh, on the explicit platform of rejecting unilateralism, installing missiles and using those as a basis for future peace, we were in a strong, we, the British and the Americans uh, were in a strong position. But, of course, for some time, there wasn't anyone at the other end of the hotline to whom you could have a fruitful conversation. The arrival of Gorbachev changed things. 
Mrs. Thatcher and others decided he was the man with whom the West could now do business. But how much business and how fruitfully? Now, Bob agreed uh, that both the US and the UK could work with Gorbachev. He thought that the new Soviet leader was simply more realistic and open-minded uh, about Soviet realities. What prompted that belief, by the way, was, uh, uh, and I'm grateful to Liddy for, for this example, was an occasion when Gorbachev, answering questions about why a building had collapsed when Soviet building standards were in place, replied that Soviet building standards were no doubt excellent, but since they were almost never applied, it didn't come into the uh, matter at all. Now, that was such a different answer um, for a Soviet leader to give to all of the previous kind of uh, leaders who were, who were dedicated to propping up um, uh, uh, the, the facade of the Soviet, the Soviet facade, rather than dealing with hard and cruel realities, that Bob felt that this man was somebody who would certainly, um, um, we could deal with. But he also felt that negotiating with the Soviets, like eating with the devil, required a very long spoon. And, and, at the, and in 1987, at the Chequers summit on UK policy, he took that view and he left believing that Mrs. Thatcher shared it. When another Sovietologist um, brought in by the Foreign Office had spoken, uh, Mrs. T turned to him and said, Sotto voce, I'm not inviting him again. Um, and later, just before his, the same year, just before her visit to Moscow, uh, Bob provided her with a briefing note that gave her information to use in a, in a television, um, in her television interview. It's terrific information, incidentally, um, and her interview was a great success. Um, he also argued that perestroika, he also argued that perestroika was an ambitious attempt to reform the Soviet system, not a conversion to genuine democracy. And I think, if I may, I'll read you a little bit from that. He says, as I write a speech by the newly promoted Yakovlev, a leading proponent of democratization asserts flatly that this will not mean democracy as the West understands it. That is, it won't mean democracy at all. <laughs> Merely a new style in the manipulation of various strata by the nomenclatura. They are telling more truths about the Soviet past. They are almost openly attacking rivals in the party. They are, urgent, they are urging, even to some extent allowing, a measure of public debate on particular policies. These are interesting and important changes, but they do not mark the withdrawal of the party's claim to total political power or Marxism-Leninism status as the sole authority in philosophy. They are telling more of the truth about the present frightful condition of the Soviet economy and society. Um, and he, uh, um, he goes on to give some of the information that Mrs. Thatcher subsequently used in her very successful television interview in her 87 visit. Well, um, I think that the point of view he expressed about perestroika was both correct at the time and closer to her own view than the arguments of other advisers. In the event, perestroika went further than either of them then expected, and both of them adapted. In her last year in office, Mrs. Thatcher was assuring, in her last year in office, Mrs. Thatcher was assuring Gorbachev that the West wasn't trying to decommunize the system, largely because perestroika was leading to a collapse of the system and an instability that, as with, as over Reykjavik, alarmed her. Now, 
Bob, uh, Bob's advice, Bob's view of the situation also changed. As it, I can tell you from, from an interesting, well, from, a, from um, uh, a discussion he had with me. Uh, I, I was editing National Review at the time, and the, when the Soviet counter-coup occurred, um, the news came through on the morning of the, uh, the afternoon in which we went to press. Didn't have anything in the magazine about Soviet counter-coup, and we only had about one page in which we could write anything. So I rang Bob up and said, what's going to happen? And he said, oh, look, this won't, this won't succeed. And it won't succeed even if it succeeds. He said, there isn't an alternative policy now for the, uh, for the Soviet elite to pursue. Um, the hardliners may think they can carry out one, but they can't. And if they try, um, the weapon of the coup will break in their hands. So I should, here's what I should do. I should write a piece saying, we don't have to worry. Um, the coup will not succeed. And it's just simply a matter of, um, of giving so solid um, moral support um, to the, to the um, well, as it turned out, uh, not so much to Gorbachev uh, as to Yeltsin. Um, but if we do that, we will find the situation develops to our advantage very remarkably. And then he said, by the way, John, you've got then two weeks to have a really considered view of this in the following issue. Well, I then wrote, I then wrote in my column, Bob had really dictated this to me, I wrote this down in my column and got a quite undeserved reputation for prescience. Um, <laughs> but but, but nonetheless, nonetheless, I was very impressed by two things. First of all, he was right, but secondly, he was right in a way that, against his own opinions of a few, um, of even um, a few years before, he had adapted very um, uh, uh, quickly to the, the way in which perestroika had become a collapse of the system. And exactly, of course, I believe, and Liddy could confirm this, but um, I believe that he was speaking to Mrs. Thatcher, and as you may recall, when the French government was dithering, um, when the British government was dithering, Mrs. Thatcher came out um, into the face of the television cameras, no longer in power, but still a figure of importance on the scene, and, and she um, gave strong support to Yeltsin. Now, I'm going to um, make two more points, and then, Joe, I'll sit down. Um, there is, uh, here is, a, I, I wanted to get a view of the relationship between Mrs. Thatcher and Bob that is not mine. So I sought, uh, uh, I requested one from Charles Pole, whom I think many of you will know, now Lord uh, Pole of Bayswater, but Mrs. Thatcher's very close advisor, almost um, her alter ego in foreign policy. Um, uh, I would describe uh, his general attitude as being half foreign office, half Thatcherite, and thoroughly loyal to Mrs. Thatcher, and an admirer of Bob. And he wrote back, um, Bob had a profound impact on Margaret Thatcher's attitude to communism and the Soviet Union. It derived from their contacts through the CPS um, think tank and when she was opposition leader. She frequently cited his views or quoted him in speeches and, as you will recall, in her autobiography. She shared his analysis of the evils of the system, his dislike of detente, and of accommodation with the Soviet Union. His influence pervaded her thinking, and that was especially potent during her first years in office when she and President Reagan joined forces to confront the Soviet Union and rebuild the West defenses. One sees it, for example, in her Churchill speech. 
Once Bob based himself full-time in Stanford, he obviously saw less of her, but he invariably came into number 10 on his annual visits to the UK to discuss policy and to give her his views. As she spotted the opportunity provided by Gorbachev to change in Soviet policies, she became more pragmatic about the scope for arrangements with Moscow, while Bob remained unremittingly skeptical. But she talked through all the main decisions with him and sought his advice from afar before any important meeting. Overall, one can say Bob had a profound influence on her thinking and that she regarded him as an, her anchor to Windward to remind her of the intrinsic evils of the communist doctrines and the malignity of Soviet intentions so that she, she, so that she was never dragged towards naive acceptance of Soviet goodwill but continued to battle for Western interests. Now, that is the view of a sober diplomat and experienced civil service civil servant at the top of the British at the top of the British administrative machine. I agree with 95% of it. There is a 5% where I might differ. But the fact is that they, the kind of people that, um, that, that um, well, Charles is an exception here, but the, uh, Charles is here, in a sense, giving a post facto benediction to the policies that Mrs. Thatcher pursued on, with Bob's backing uh, which at the time the establishment itself had grave doubts about and sometimes opposed covertly or, o or overtly. So we can say, therefore, that Bob was indeed a, a, world, I mean, a very important figure in the history of those times and in what changed. Finally, um, I, won't go, I, won't, I will simply say the relationship continued after uh, Mrs. Thatcher left office. It was um, a very important... Uh, element in her being, she, she had to recover from the shock of losing office. And Bob was an extremely important f uh, person in giving her the kind of continued intellectual backing that would enable her to discuss and confront new, new problems. The most important thing, and later on perhaps we can quote from it, he sends her a letter, um, while she's still in office actually, but, uh, but which about events which are going to occur mainly after she's left, namely the wars of nationalism in the former Yugoslavia. And he warns her that if the administration, um, she's talk, talking about the government in Britain, if the government in Britain has to, um, uh, gets the opportunity, it should make absolutely, it should try to press the West into declaring that violence is cannot possibly be used to solve any of these problems. And if that is not the case, the situation will unravel dreadfully, and she will, and, and not she, but, but the world will suffer, as it did, a, a succession of dangerous wars. Now, um, he gave that advice, as I say, late 90, and she loses power. Um, then the, 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 the advice, I'm afraid, is not followed. The West does not take a strong stand on, on, on ensuring there is no violence in the area, uh, in violence is not used to solve the problems. And as a result, the succession of wars uh, do take, does take place. She herself then got involved, as you will recall, in attempting to, um, to secure uh, greater Western and particularly American um, action to intervene and settle the crisis, which eventually did happen, but only after wars had occurred, which had her, had her and his advice been taken, might have been, we might have been saved. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit 
hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.